Welcome to this week's episode of From Broadcast Depth, a retrospective podcast about the television series Lost. My name is Ben Lundy, and with me as always is Kevin Ford. Kevin, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Uh, I wasn't recording this today as WrestleMania Sunday, so a big deal for myself and some friends. And uh, yeah, just a, a long, long day ahead of me, but I couldn't couldn't resist podcasting with you, Ben. So it's you're, so you're going to WrestleMania or you're watching WrestleMania? I'm watching it. Watching WrestleMania it. is in New Orleans this year, which is okay. a very expensive weekend yeah. away. Uh, I, I went the last two years. It was in Orlando and Dallas, respectively. But this year, just it's it's an expense. It's like, you know, three hundred dollars a night in a hotel. So I'll just watch it on the the (laughs) WWE Network. And uh, yeah, it'll be. Well, I appreciate you taking the time out to do a podcast with me despite that, because I know it's a big deal for you. Well, it's it's a big deal, but there's a lot of other events going on this weekend. But I'm, I'm very fearful of burnout. So I took some time yesterday to just play video games or read comics and watch some lost and, and make sure I'm ready for nice. the, the mammoth show. That's going to be today. Although I'll probably split it up and, and go to bed earlier. Cause I, I am working tomorrow after all. I can't, I can't uh, be totally irresponsible, but enough about that. That's yes. what we're here for. We're, we're here talking, talking about, about lost. We are. And you're kicking us off this week. So we've got uh, two, two season two episodes. I didn't write the numbers down. Do you, what is it? Episode five that I'm doing? So it's five and six, episodes five and six. Okay. Episode five is dot 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 and found and uh it is a uh, sun and gin centric episode we are in day number 47 on the island and this we, is the second lost pun title episode so far i believe right yes so they had dot 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 in translation that's what it was okay uh, yeah it was the other one which you know these are both sun and gin episodes that we've that they've used this for the in translation one made a lot of sense of course because they're the korean speaking couple but then they sort of just continued the pun i think with this one so yeah uh our recap we have is the, the essential pieces that were shown claire's finding the mess- message in the bottle collection uh, on the beach from last time where this gives us a clue that something might have happened to the raft or we know it happened to the raft, but gives the survivors a clue. And then we just uh, kind of see a summary of what's been happening to Michael, Jin, and Sawyer uh, on the other side of the island who washed up from the raft uh, and met the tail section survivors and most recently got back to their headquarters, which is a sort of a much more hollowed out and rustic looking uh, type of compound similar to the hatch that our middle section survivors have discovered, but their conditions appear to be a lot more dire. Specifically, they were initially told there were 23 survivors and now there's only five left. So for the moment, we're being left into the dark at what happened with all that, but uh, can obviously see that things are pretty tough for them. So that's where we are. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and do the flashback first and then our island stuff. And I've got the the flashback I'm going to do pretty much in sequence because it mixes Jin and Sun's perspectives in quite a bit. The start of the flashback with uh, Sun and her mother, this is the youngest we've seen Sun at this point because everything to this point we've seen I uh, believe Kevin is is after she's been married or right around, I guess, before she got married. We saw her early on in the courtship with with Jin. Is that right? Yeah, they, they was right before he asked for permission to, to marry her. So, yeah, definitely the youngest we've seen either her or Jin. Right. So we're going back in time further. Son's mother is making a first appearance on screen. We've seen her father. We know he's uh, like sort of a kind of a gangster-like asshole businessman. The mother is preparing son for this kind of matchmaking meetup. And I will apologize in advance. I did a little bit of research, but uh, a lot of this, of course, is really heavily dependent on 
knowing some things about Korean culture or kind of assuming that the show does, putting my faith in the uh, writers that they did whatever research needed. But I guess this is a thing maybe for more wealthy couples. But basically what's what her mother says is that son did not meet a husband while she was in college, which is sort of like a thing you do. And so now she's considered a silver which means that she's already sort of been downgraded from being a, a, a top pick wife, I guess. And so this matchmaking thing is going on to try to get her married before she becomes a bronze, which has got to suck. What a, what a way to put it. I'm sorry she didn't get her MRS degree in college. I mean- right. So, and I guess there's also the hint that some of this pressure is coming from her father as well. Meanwhile, Jin, who we know from previous flashback, comes from uh, pretty poor beginnings. We see him living in kind of a cramped and not so great looking apartment with a roommate. And he's preparing for a job interview, you know, putting on his tie and everything. And he's even got leaving the tag on the tie so he can return it and all sorts sorts of little tricks like that. But his roommate is trying to tell his fortune. And I actually did do a little research into this, Kevin, because I was just curious about it. This thing that they refer to as a destiny book that the guy's reading. So I did a little research and I actually found a blog called High Heels in a Backpack by a woman named Melissa. She didn't give her last name. Basically, she's a traveler and she talks about different things. She has an article about visiting a Korean fortune teller. And basically what what this the deal with this thing is, is that it's kind of like a more complicated version of a horoscope where like with a horoscope, you, uh, you know, you just you have your birthday in mind and then you're supposed to be able to tell things about your life and your destiny from your birthday. They have these books, apparently, with like traditional Korean fortune telling where you put all sorts of statistics in and then you sort of it's like a chart where you figure out by cross-referencing all these things about yourself, you're supposed to come up with a really complete picture of, of what your what your future is going to be like. So I thought that was kind of interesting. This guy's obviously really into it. And he says that Jin's future, that love will look orange to Jin. So that's kind of a clue, I guess. Well, who knows what the hell that means? Well, you know, hey, I mean, that's like, that's about as cryptic as any other fortune-telling thing. Very you true. know, like the whole, the whole idea of fortune-tellers and how they like drop hints that, can really mean anything in order to make it sound like they know what they're talking about, you know, but uh, (laughs) Jin blows that off. He says, whatever, he's, he's not really feeling the whole fortune telling thing. He says a man needs a goal in his life and he wants to be more than the son of a fisherman. So he goes and interviews for this job. And um, of course, you know, he's sitting in this uh, nice room with this exec guy who runs the hotel um, the guy immediately starts casting really nasty remarks Jin's way. It's like, uh, you know, I can tell you're from a village, uh, you know, not a city, and, and I, I can smell the fish on you and things like that. Just really insulting stuff. The other thing I noticed between this and when, to a certain extent, when he was talking to Sun's father last season in his interview was not much direct eye contact with the, yeah. as, as the subordinate to the boss. That's true. I mean, I, I I know that that just living in the town that I live in, and and Kevin, you know the town that I live in because you uh, went to college here. But that there's this sort of divide with uh, the locals, and then other folks who have moved here. A large portion of with have, has have to do with the university. So it's interesting. There's a little clash there, and I've I've heard some of that before. Um, I'm not in any particular context, but so I, I felt what was going on with the scene and and the way that Jin was feeling, hearing like this. But the thing is. He does get the job, and but the advice that the guy leaves him for is don't open the door for people like you. Who better to scout the type of people they don't want than one of their own? I, I guess so. I guess so. <laughs> so 
All right, so we come back to Sun, and her mother's still coaching her as they get out of the car. Um, she's told, you know, keep your hands on your lap. Don't speak unless you're asked a direct question. All this uh, stuff that's supposed to be preparing her. The matchmaking date is with the son of a man who owns this hotel that they're going into, and thirteen or twelve other hotels, so thirteen hotels total. Um, and then as they go through, the doorman for the hotel who opens the door for them is Jin. So this is his new job, but they have not made eye contact or met or anything yet. But inside, the two mothers are kind of talking about their kids like they're not even there. Son's mother's bragging about her and saying that she she was a major in art history, I guess. Or did that come out later? That might have come out later. But, yeah, when uh, they're talking, it's like, what did you go to school for? X, right, y? right. And then this guy's a Harvard graduate. This uh, There's the guy across from her, um, and his name is Jay Lee. But they call him Mr. Lee a lot here because obviously everybody's treating him with all this respect. But uh, the, the two women leave, and, and uh, Jay and Son start to actually talk to each other, and it seems to actually get pretty comfortable pretty quickly. They get along. Uh, you know, he jokes about being a uh, – well, he's, he majored in medieval Russian literature, but somehow ended up in hotel management. And she kind of smart asses him about it because his dad's obviously the, you know, well, oh, yeah, you somehow ended up. Right. In hotel Why did you go to college at all? I would add to that. If you end up in medieval Russian literature as your major, there's probably a good odds, probably good odds that you're not going to end up doing that for a career. That's a pretty specific. I mean, I was a film studies major and I, I knew around before I graduated that unless I went on to film school, I was probably not going to be using that for day to day. But it's good for this podcast. It is good for the podcast. Yeah, I, I can I'm sometimes impress people occasionally with like words about movies that they don't know. Yeah. So anyway, they uh, so Sun majored in art history. Um, they just they have a little better connection uh, than maybe either of them expected. We move to the next scene, and uh, they're I guess having another date. This is another day and time, and uh, it's it's at the hotel again. Though they're getting ready to have dinner. I would say dinner because it looks like it's more afternoon evening. Jay Lee comes up, gets outside, gets up outside, and in his pulls up in his car, and Jin lets him out. And he looks at Jin's got this orange rose. Now, see, at first I thought this was the orange, Kevin. Did you notice that it was this was orange? No, or, I didn't. Okay, see, I like I was looking for the orange, and it is. It's like an orange rose. I don't know if that was intentional or not, or if it was a misdirect or whatever. But I thought maybe it had something to do with it. But anyway, so Jay Lee asks if he can have it, and. Jin gives it to him, and so he's got it on when he talks to Sun. But the the bomb that gets dropped here basically is that it looks like Sun is actually interested in this guy. Like you know, enough is they've talked enough that she feels like, well, I might actually like this guy, despite the fact that it's basically being forced on me. But then he reveals that he is basically dating her and sort of playing the matchmaking game, basically just to placate his parents, because he what he's really interested in doing is moving back to America to. Uh, marry this American woman that he met at Harvard. So he's kind of just doing this for appearances. And of course, Sun is, you know, visibly devastated when she figures this out. This scene was pretty heartbreaking for Sun, I think. Why would he not tell her in that initial meeting? Right. Unless Say that up front. the mothers may have left like a security person in there. Yeah. Or something. But either like I would have just been like, just so you know, like nothing's going to happen. I have this on the right. plate. But if you want to have some fun dinners, like it's on me, have some yeah. drinks, whatever. 
go for it, but this is definitely not going anywhere. Because she might have been completely down for that, you know, because that because she was feeling all the same type of pressure too. Like, you yeah, know, we gotta. Get. So if there was this guy who was seems like a perfectly nice guy, and it's like, hey, we can spend some time together, you know, act like we're really getting along and having a good match and everything, and then get our parents off our backs for a while, then she'd probably be down for that. But she spent this time actually growing and developing an attraction to him. And then he just kind of pulls the rug out. So yeah, no good. Um, so that sucks. But uh, she kind of bails really quickly. These two things are happening concurrently because of the way that they end up meeting. But Jin, meanwhile, is working the front door of the hotel. And this dis- disheveled looking guy who's obviously supposed to look like kind of poor and, you know, from the, the lower classes comes up and he's got kid with him. Theoretically, the kid has to use the bathroom, and I feel like the child is making this really half-hearted attempt to look like he has to go to the bathroom. Did you watch this kid at all in the scene? Yeah, of course I did. It was like, oh, he really has to go, and I'm like, I don't know. It looks like he could because Jin tells him, hey, you can go down the street, and the kid says he can't hold it. I'm like, but nothing about your body language has this urgency to it. You know, yeah, not too convincing, but despite that, Jin takes pity on these uh, two and lets them into the hotel long enough for the little boy to use the bathroom. Of course, the asshole exec boss guy who hired Jin happened to be right there when this happens, sees it happen, comes out, and uh, honestly, I thought he was going to fire Jin on the spot. Um, So I was actually a little surprised that he was like, this is your warning. (laughs) Yeah, same. But it doesn't even really matter because he just starts in insulting Jin just kind of like oh your your people know all about like just pissing in the alley and you know you're used to that and that sort of thing to the extent that Jin's like fuck this and he just he pulls off his gloves and he's like he's even Jin's even nice to be like thank you for the opportunity I feel like if I ever quit a job I would have different words but Jin's such a nice guy that he says that and then and then walks off on the job so yeah so now we've got Jin having walked off the job, Sun having walked out of this crappy situation where she, um, this situation was not what she thought it was, and this guy's not really into her. And so Jin's walking by the water, and he sees this woman in an orange dress and uh, sort of Matrix style, except it's orange instead of red. He follows it, it's distracting, and then he turns around, and he bumps into Sun. And that's pretty much all that is left because, for the flashback because the look on the two of their faces when they actually meet. And Lock Eyes uh, speaks for itself. They're instant fireworks between these two. And of course, we know where it goes from there that they will become one of Lost's most cherished couples. Uh, and we get to see their, their meet cute. And that's the flashback. To be fair, are there really that many other cherished couples on Lost that compete for their spot? I would say that the other cherished couples on Lost are subjects of heated debate. Um, there are a couple, but we can't talk about them yet. But that but sure. things like the whole like Jack Kate Sawyer love triangle, you know, that's the thing where like it created two armies of 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 followers, the Jaders and the Skaters. Whereas I think like even the Jaders and the Skaters who'll be clawing at each other's throats, arguing about who Kate should end up with. When you mention Sun and Jin, everybody collectively goes, "Oh, Sun and Jin, they're the <laughs> yeah. best." You know, yeah. So I mean, you're probably right. It was nice to see this. It's I, I had I had conflicting feelings because it was one of those things where I don't know if I necessarily needed to see all this, mm-hmm. but I also appreciated it because when you think back to how severe Jin was in those early episodes of season one, 
And I think then you're thinking, why would Sun still stick by this jerk X, Y, Z? It's not that simple. And I think when you take a look back on their past and see all this stuff coming together, you start to to piece it together. And the distance that they've created for themselves between Jin going on the raft and her staying on the island strengthens that a little bit too. So I'm, I'm, it's nice to see how much progress we've made in, in only a season's worth of episodes for how we as viewers visualize the relationship of Sun and Jin. Right. Yeah. And I mean, it's almost exactly a season. You're right, because the first Sun episode was season uh, one, episode six. So, yeah, almost exactly one season later, we've learned so much about these two. And I mean, I agree with you. I think to me, this falls into the category, one of those flashbacks where like, it's not necessary, but because it's written well and because you care about the characters so much, it's also very enjoyable. Not every flashback has to be revelatory as long as it's written well and 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 you enjoy the story that it tells. And and I enjoyed this. So. Yeah, it was. It, you know, it just has to be fun. It doesn't. I don't. If as long as I don't feel like I'm wasting my time or it's bad, it's okay. Right. Um, all right, so let's do our island stuff here. Now, uh, like I said, I've got, we got two uh, island stories. I'm going to do the uh, Jin side first and then wrap up with the sun. So we'll start with Jin, Michael, and Sawyer, where we last left them. They are inside the uh, compound, this bunker that the tail section people have found to live in and they're watching as the remaining five tailies i'm just going to start calling them tailies because that's what we always called them back then and and i'm going to start calling them that sooner or later so the tailies are talking about what's going on and and slayer says i think they're going to eat us michael reassures Jin that he'll be with sun again soon then anna lucia comes up and tells them that they're going to gather food and water and then they're going to go uh, they're going to go back to where they came from, meaning her decision is that they are going to merge the tribes, which makes sense to me. If you have even just met these people for a little bit, you can probably see that they have been a lot worse off than Michael, Jin, and Sawyer. So uh, they say maybe we should go meet up with these 40-some other people who have obviously had it a little better than we have over the last uh, month or so. And and we're getting a sense here, I guess, just for these interactions, I've Obviously, the show is holding off on giving us complete details on what happened to these people, but we're getting this sense of how much more terrified and cautious they are. Uh, Michael asks, what's going on? <laughs> like, Because, you know, Anna Lucia is doing her typical thing. She's just immediately starting to bark orders at everybody. Like, we're going to go get food and water. You're going to do this. You're going to do that. And Michael's like, wait a minute. You know, before we do all this, can you please just tell us why you're so freaked out? What did you feel about Anna Lucia at this point, Kevin? I felt like she was tough and hardened but for a reason like you, you, between these two episodes you get a sense that she's very protective of mm-hmm. both herself and her her people she's not quick as quick to accept these new folks into the camp as the others or believe um, them or believe them as much yeah. as the as the tailies are the the sense you can get and and I think this even grows in in the episode I'm going to talk about is that the tailies are more sympathetic to Michael Jin and Sawyer they understand, you know, we're all survivors in this. We're all victims here. But Ana Lucia is still in. She's the one making the the, the major mm-hmm. distinction between their group versus us. Yeah. And and holds on to that. And um, but you kind of understand where she's coming from. I mean, yeah. especially with with Sawyer, it's kind of funny they're programmed together because Sawyer's very much like the every man for themselves survival of the fittest. Right. Like when the show begins, and now it's almost 
not necessarily begrudgingly, but just in the situation himself, it's him, Michael, and and Jin sort of sticking together. Well, well, to some extent. To though, some extent. Think about the way that he behaves in these couple episodes, and he actually literally even uses the phrase "it's every man for himself" in this episode. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So he's come he's come some way since the beginning of the series as we know him. But I think he's still if you're if you're looking at a scale, I think he's more on the Anna Lucia side. Yeah, it's when he's programmed with Anna Lucia though that you see how much more. How, how much she's corrected herself to that, to that, to the side that she's, she's like Sawyer adjacent, like where she's a little bit more mm. far out there. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I, I think with, with Anna Lucia, I think a lot of people just immediately hated her because she came across with this attitude, but then some people are more like, well, let me wait a little while and see maybe there's a reason why she is the way she is. You know, I was sort of waiting for the other shoe to drop here because they're obviously all like this. And then your personality dictates how you react. Like, you know, Libby seems like she's just kind of terrified of everything. Bernard and Cindy seem more like they're they're just happy to defer to a leader. You know, so like their their defense mechanism is, well, they'll just let Anna Lucia make all the decisions. And then Mr. Echo is kind of interesting because he will seem to like defer to Anna Lucia unless he has a really strong belief about one particular thing, which we'll see in a minute here. And then he's like, I'm going to do this whether you like it or not. This has been a psychological analysis of the Tailies as we know them so far. Yeah, so Anna Lucia is kind of a smart ass with Michael when he asks what's going on. I'm like, oh, let's swap stories. But she sends Cindy and Echo uh, to scout. I guess as good a time as any, too, to point out, Kevin, for anybody who's who's watching and did not make the connection, Cindy is the flight attendant from the very first scene on the plane. Yes, she is. So that was, I mean, I, they never said that ex explicitly, although she is wearing something. I, she thinks she's even still wearing kind of part of her uniform, right? I think so, yeah. You know, but and so it was never said out loud at any point. But at this point, you know, in Lost, when season two was coming around, people were scrutinizing the show to such an extent that probably people were immediately like, that's Cindy, that's the flight attendant. So that very first scene that we see on the plane where the flight attendant gives Jack a couple of free bottles of booze, that's Cindy. So this is uh, not just some random throwaway character, but we actually have seen this character before. Uh, anyway, she and Echo go uh, to scout, I guess, to look and see if there's any uh, signs of danger or problems before they leave. Libby and Michael are going off to get fruit, and Jin is summoned to go with Bernard to get fish, uh, with, and along with Anna Lucia, when Michael, or I think uh, Sawyer says, that, yeah, this guy knows how to fish, which then results in kind of a, a funny scene, but also kind of a, one of those scenes that makes um, Anna Lucia look kind of terrible. <laughs> where Jin's just sitting there throwing bait into the water, you know, because he knows what he's doing. Anna Lucia and Bernard are kind of struggling with a net and want his help, and he won't, uh, you know, he won't get up. And then she, or he says something in Korean, and she's like, does it look like I speak Korean? In like this really, really patronizing way, you know? But then he, of course, he pulls in like, you know, 10 fish in one net because of the bait that he threw. I love that scene Great. so hard. It just yeah. slaps her right in the face. Yeah. <laughs> Totally. And I mean, she, she acknowledges it. it, it if, if nothing else, she at least, you know, looks at Bernard with this it's kind of like, okay, um, I guess I'm impressed after all type of smile on her face. But Jin is even phased by this. He's like, look, I know what I'm doing. Right. Here's exactly. a bunch of fish. P.S. My dad was a fisherman. So right. suck it. He's also been dealing with people who are sort of talking at him without even know Korea, knowing Korean for like over a month now. So 
Um, yeah, you yeah, can take just, a little bit too. This kind of does his thing. Meanwhile, Libby apologizes to Michael for the whole pit incident and says that the group has trust issues. And then when he suggests that they go further inland to get fruit, she says uh, they, they don't go inland because that's where they come from. Then when they're all back at camp, Echo gives Sawyer a makeshift machete. Throwing knives right next to Sawyer's head is a thing. Because uh, last season, you'll remember that happened with Locke. The knife got thrown right next to Sawyer's head. But this we've got a makeshift machete for protection when they travel. Libby comes back. She's by herself. And she says that Michael ran off into the jungle. Jen is trying to explain and finally just says, Walt. And Sawyer figures that out. Basically, Jen's surmised that Michael's gone after Walt. And I think this happened as soon as Libby said something about where they come from. So like it or not, Michael has just taken off after Walt. And that sets off basically the rest of the events here. There's an argument over staying for him or leaving without him. Echo, first, he tries to keep Jin from going after Michael to the point of even headbutting him, but then eventually he decides that he's going to go, he's going to go with him. So this is Echo sort of expressing this sense of his own personal feeling of right and wrong and saying, okay, well, I'm, I'm at least going to go with this guy to find his friend. He kind of overrides Anna Lucia. And there's a little bit of a moment there because I get the feeling that that's their sort of their dynamic the whole time, like before we've met them, is that Anna Lucia sort of calls the shots but occasionally Echo will override her and she's she just kind of backs down from that, you know? Unlike Jack, who doesn't want to be the leader, and that's an air quotes, Anna Lucia <laughs> very much is very comfortable in this leader role. She's clearly comfortable being a leader, but she's also like, th- there's, a, there's an understanding between her and Echo that occasionally he's going to do his own thing and he's not going to be stopped, so she doesn't try. It's a checks and balances sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to put it. So yeah, so now we've got Echo and Jin um, going through the jungle. They hear these noises. Jin runs in that direction, which is never a good idea, but turns out to be a boar. The boar tackles Jin. He falls over and gets up and sees a dead body with a stake in it. And this is one of those, one of several creep out moments in the episode that just come from good acting where Mr. Echo says his name was Goodwin and Jin says, uh, others? And Echo just nods. (laughs) They continue their trek through the jungle. Eventually, they find fresh track, which Echo says must be Michael because they, again in air quotes, don't have tracks or they don't leave tracks. So they follow these tracks, they hear more noises, and when they hear these noises, Echo is terrified. And again, it's, it's the actor's acting that really does this because he slaps his hand over Jin's mouth and makes this has these terrified eyes of like I know exactly what we're dealing with here and they hide behind some bush and they watch about four or five sets of of feet walk by in complete silence they're hidden right behind the bushes and the last one has a teddy bear roped or tied to its I guess tied around its waistline I guess But it is definitely like an iconic moment. And in fact, they actually use it for the menu screen for this, this particular DVD. Did you have, was that, is that the same in the Blu-rays, Kevin? I, yes, yes, it is. Yeah. So I, I didn't even mention this last season, but each season there is one DVD menu where there's like a hidden thing. If you wait long enough, I kept meaning to mention it last season and I just kept forgetting, but it's like last season you wait about 30 seconds the beachcraft will fall off the cliff in the season two 
disc to that we're on right now. It's just, it looks like it's just a shot of some, you know, underbrush in the jungle. And if you wait about, you have to wait about a minute on the screen, on the menu screen, you'll start seeing these uh, muddy feet uh, walking through. And then the last one has the little uh, teddy bear. So it's pretty cool. It's like one of those Easter egg things that is creepy. <laughs> There's freaky Michael Giacchino music accompanying the scene. And so you're meant to obviously be pretty freaked out by this. Jin tries to go on alone, but Echo continues to insist on accompanying him. Meanwhile, that the rest of the group is uh, moving through the jungle and Sawyer finally collapses. So we know from last time that his uh, his wound, his bullet wound was not looking so good. Anna Lucia says she's going to leave him behind, but Sawyer points out that he's the only one who knows how to get to their camp. That She doesn't seem to be phased by that. They kind of have these quips back and forth. It's meant to be humorous because they're, I mean, you got two basically, basically characters that are total smart asses being smart asses to each other. It, it, uh, is, it is fun to see Sawyer finally get somebody who can go, who can match him on the sarcasm and, and yeah. uh, humor level. Especially, I also think it helps that it's a woman because we know Sawyer, we know his personality. And I think that a, a woman who stands toe to toe with him in both smart ass and I could kick your ass uh, is kind of nice to see. So. So Echo and Jin are still following Michael. Um, Echo leaves Jin for a moment and Jin sees Michael. He says, leave me alone, you know, just go back. But they both follow him. Everybody, all three of them eventually catch up at this waterfall. And it's a really cool location, actually. I don't think we ever see again. This sort of rock face with just a kind of a thin waterfall coming down. Michael is just screaming Walt's name. I think this is the scene, Kevin, where the whole Walt like meme sort of started like a couple episodes of him yelling for Walt on the, on the ocean was one thing, but the fact that he just never stopped screaming Walt in this scene, I think people were finally at the point where they were like, this is ridiculous. And the Walt meme was born, especially because in this scene, echo is kind of trying to tell him like, first of all, these people are not going to show up if they don't want to be found. Second, you're not doing any good you know, by yelling or you're announcing our presence. They basically just talk Michael down eventually and sort of convince him that this is not the way to get, to go about finding Walt. Finally convince him to come back with them. Uh, and that's where that whole section ends, the portion that has gin in it. Some of it was, I felt like it was a little bit treading water because you've got this whole thing where, you know, Michael runs off. We know he's looking for Walt. And then they spend half the episode just trying to catch up with him only to convince him to come back. But what did you think? Yeah, no, I, even as you're recapping and I'm just like, man, this is, this feels long. <laughs> like we can, we can get to the point here with getting Michael's going to find Walt. Yeah. Sorry and, if I'm over talking things. No, it's all right. I think, you know, the, the, the mention of the survivors with the bear and, and, you know, getting Michael back is important, but yeah, I mean, even this in the second Island story, I wasn't a big fan of. I, I actually thought about when I was, doing this that this might be another one of those episodes where i actually like the flashback better than the on island story because there's just there's a lot of treading water here for sure and you know yeah. what's and i'll say this now this is a damon lindelof and carlton cuse episode is it yeah and you would and so when i'm watching this i'm like oh hell yeah here we go and i just kept waiting for something mm -hmm. to happen to make mm -hmm. it seem like these that it was worthwhile to put the head guys on this episode it just never came well i think i, I actually you know when i think about it this episode or or writing this episode probably informs some of the things that they'll say later when they were talking about being frustrated by the idea of having to tread water halfway through the series when they went they went to 
the uh, executives at ABC and they said, we really need an end date for this show because we need to know how thinly we need to stretch out this storyline that we've got planned. And they, they actually were able to successfully negotiate for that, which was considered to be a pretty big deal. And this is probably the kind of thing that informed that. They were writing this episode and there were obviously a couple of things that they wanted to drop, like getting to see these people walking through the jungle and the creepiness of that and little hints about like you see this body and say it was a guy named Goodwin and so forth. But for the most part, the episode is is pretty slow moving and does not have a lot of real meat to it. And I can imagine how that would frustrate them and sort of push them to a point where they say we can't we can't do this indefinitely. So, all right, our last little bit here is a smaller storyline. Uh, with this one, we have Claire and Son doing laundry and talking about the fact that the raft's been gone four days. Of course, we know that both of these two know that the uh, bottle washed up on the shore. But then Son, Son suddenly realized that her wedding ring is gone. So she's on a mission to find her wedding ring with this episode. And again, kind of one of those plots where you're like, this is not really all that exciting. Jack notices, tells her about how he lost his wedding ring once and ended up replacing it with a replica because he could never find it, but that it's now rattling around in his sock drawer, which I think is just kind of confirmation that Jack is currently single. The one redeeming moment, and I'm sure you'll agree with me, of this whole plot line is the scene with Early, of course, where he's walking around with Sun and uh, helping her retrace her steps. She mentions that she fed the dog, and then we cut to the two of them waiting for Vincent to poop. (laughs) Because Hurley's theory is that the dog ate the ring. Um, They also had a good line in here that I liked where uh, he's just trying to make conversation with Sun, and he's like, so you're from Seoul. Is that the good Korea or the bad Korea? (laughs) And she just looks at him, she's like, the good one. (laughs) Because what a a very American way of putting it. (laughs) Right, exactly. So Hurley tells the Buster story, and I, I I don't know about you, but it looked to me like Jorge Garcia was a fraction of a second away from busting out laughing and breaking character. Like, he almost looks at the camera with this, and I guarantee <laughs> there's got to be outtakes where he busts up laughing telling the story. And then Sun remembers the dog that Jin gave her, which I think she called her she called him Popo, and I think she's referring to the wrinkly bribe dog from a previous flashback. Um, That's what I figured. Yeah. We also get a good uh, lock moment here where she's looking for the ring in a garden and she gets frustrated, starts tearing up some of her own plants. Lock comes up and says, uh, bad day and gives son a handkerchief. I did but, appreciate uh, that when lock gave it to her, he's like, it's clean. It's clean. Ne- you never know. <laughs> Especially on the Island. I mean, sometimes with handkerchiefs, you have to wonder that just in general, but yeah, even on an Island. Yeah. It's clean. She says, uh, that she's never seen him angry and he says that he used to get angry all the time but he's not lost anymore and she says how did that happen he said that uh, he says the same way anything lost gets found i stopped looking so the next scene uh, i think we see that she took his advice because she's just hanging out by the ocean but kate comes and joins her this is i guess where kate learns about the whole thing about the bottle and how that it, it washed back up nobody's told her yet so she wants to go back and look look at it you know son says that i buried it so they dig it back up and Kate's going through it. I, I don't really understand this because she says that she didn't get the chance to say goodbye to Sawyer. What does that have to do with reading people's messages in the bottle? I think she's hopeful she'll find a message from Sawyer that's like a confession of him saying something to her. 
But we know the joke's on her because Sora didn't write no darn message in that bottle. Well, right, he didn't. But also, like, why would he address a letter to her and put it in the bottle? That doesn't make any sense. Hopeless romanticism, my friend. Yes, or hopeless writing. Um, oh. oh, bird. <laughs> Sorry, that just came out. Um, anyway. No, God, I, I respect those two guys so much. But so anyway, so they look at that moment. Kate looks down and, and of course, they find the ring and it had come off when she buried the bottle. So that closes that up. And we cut to Lost uh, with them on the ocean. So as you said, I think not a whole lot of action on the island, just a couple of good, uh, important moments, but nothing earth shaking. What do you think? Yeah, I agree with you. I think you I think you did a good job surmising it as quickly as you could. It's, <laughs> it's one of those things, too, where timing's everything we just came off the episode with all this stuff in the hatch and the dharma initiative video and we learned about the hanso foundation all mm-hmm. this other stuff and people are probably chomping at the bit what's next what's coming next in the story oh we've got i'm sure people weren't looking into the writers a week ahead but knowing what i know oh man it's a lindelof and Cuse episode here we are and then we get this yeah <laughs> and you're like what this yeah. is just not following up on all that earth-shattering, groundbreaking stuff with a, with a fluffy episode. Not a bad one, but again, yeah. pretty inconsequential. Well, I would say, yeah, like I say, an episode that's worth watching for its flashback more than anything else. I mean, if you love the characters, and I think just about everybody universally liked Sun and Jin, you've got a really good flashback for them. But that it does say something when the flashback is the most that the episode has to offer. Let's see. Uh, you said you had a quote for this episode, and I did not remember to do one. So what is yours? Mine was just the interaction with Locke and Son where he says, I'm not lost anymore. She says, how did you do that? And he said, same way anything lost gets found. I stopped uh, looking. Yeah, it's a great one. I mean, that would have been a candidate. I just forgotten to to keep in mind to look for one. But yeah, and that's a little thing, too. I mean, it is nice. It's just, you're getting to see Locke sort of back in his environment, and he's not in the hatch right now. And you know, you get a fun moment with Hurley. So there's little, there's little, uh, you know, tidbits like that where you can, and, and Lindelof and Q's probably write these characters better than anybody. So, you know, to get these little moments is kind of nice. Who was your, did you have a, a favorite moment of the episode? I really liked the moment with Jin and his friend in the apartment as he's getting ready, just the nice rapport with them. It was just nice to see Jin more in a more relaxed state with a friend. They're just kind of, you know, taking the piss out of his nerves and having some fun. It just felt like a very real, genuine moment. For sure. And you see, because you see, too, you see Jin before all this terrible stuff started happening to him. Like, you know, there his love and his relationship with Sun and their marriage is very real and very... There's true love there, obviously, but it also came with a lot of, it brought a lot of bad stuff into his life too. And just so to see him before sort of all of that begins was kind of interesting. I had for mine the uh, scene of Jin and Echo seeing the others behind the bushes where they just see the feet walking through the jungle because uh, to me, the Giacchino music combined with the acting there just uh, really sold me on how terrifying this is, uh, especially when we don't even get, we don't even have a full accounting yet of what actually happened to the tail section people to make them so terrified. So that's kind of iconic to me. Uh, for my asshole idiot, uh, I had Michael. I think he's hard to top on the island, but uh, did you have somebody else? I said it was son. You said son? Yeah, maybe maybe if I was a, a married man, I'd feel more uh, sympathy to her, but it just felt like she was bothering a heck of a lot of people for a missing wedding ring, you know, on yeah. an island where there's plenty of more other important fish to fry. Like, <laughs> just do it yourself, just figure it out. I get that it's symbolic and blah, blah, blah. But really, yeah. like in, in, in these dire times, figure it out on your own. 
Yeah. No, actually, as a married guy, I can say that I, I actually, I think I agree with you uh, that she was probably working up too much concern over a ring on a, in an island survival situation. I think that I would probably be forgiven either by myself or my wife or anybody for losing a ring in a situation like that and it not being on a top of the priority list. But I just, I just put Michael because pretty much, again, him doing the whole, I'm going to run off as a one-man army with no weapons and no knowledge to try to get my kid back from these mysterious people and take half an episode and inconvenience everybody doing it was just stupid. And right. now I didn't catch any numbers at all, which yep. was surprising to me. No numbers here either. Sawyer nicknames I got that Echo was called Mr. Ed by uh, <laughs> Sawyer. Like Mr. Ed, Mr. Echo. No real co- uh, correlation there, I guess. But uh, no books because we are not down in the hatch. And then the last thing for music, nothing really to go on there either. There's no tracks from this episode in the season two soundtrack, uh, but this does introduce what they call the other's motif. Whenever there's unknown people in the jungle, they uh, start to use particular motif more and more. Uh, Giacchino does. uh, And just this, this creepy music that I've alluded to a couple times while they're watching them traipse through the jungle. Uh, And you don't get that on the soundtrack, but uh, it gets sampled in a whole lot of tracks in the future because it gets used quite a bit whenever there's unknown creepies walking through the jungle. Anything else to say about these episodes or this episode? Nope, nothing to say. It was there. It was there. And then we moved on to... Abandoned, a Shannon flashback episode written by Javier Grillo Marchois and Leonard Dick, who we're quite familiar with. There's a couple side stories here I'm going to touch upon as briefly as I can, because for reasons that will become pretty obvious pretty quickly, Shannon deserves the spotlight here in this episode. Yeah, for sure. So the previously on, we see Boone's death and his burial. Then we see Ana Lucy and the others heading to the beach, but then Michael ran off to find Walt and Mr. Echo assisting Jin and finding Michael and countering the others from a distance. You're seen with the, the swinging bear and all that sort right. of stuff. So the first mini side story here is, Charlie doing absolutely no favors to himself oh, to God, endear Charlie. him and get him off the, the asshole idiot list. Yeah. I didn't have your back in the finale when it was him and Saeed going to, to go save Aaron without her. But now Charlie has the nerve to be critical of Claire's choices as a mother. And I, it's one of those things where his heart's in the right place, but his execution is so poor. I can't even give him points in that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, there's a point where Aaron can't stop crying and, and Locke swaddles him in a blanket to this level of comfort and tightness where the baby stops and Claire's yeah. super thankful to Locke. And Charlie gets weirdly jealous by this. He gets jealous of Locke. It yeah. does not make any sense. No, it's very irrational. It just it, there's nothing redeeming about Charlie here. And it's and it's like this. Is he is he jealous of Locke in like like he looks at Locke as like a sexual competitor for Claire or something? That would be the most bizarre thing to assume in the first place, especially since you feel like Locke and Charlie established a bond last season about the whole helping him get over heroin thing. And wouldn't you think that him going off into the woods with Claire alone to build the baby carriage would be much more of a, a cardinal sin in Charlie's eyes than helping him get the baby to stop crying? Yeah, I mean, who knows? It's like it, it's that and then and then it's like on the other hand, this over possessive of the baby by Charlie like Charlie has moved in and established himself as this kid's father without even being without being invited or anything like this 
Claire, you're mothering the baby wrong. Here, give me the baby. I know what's best for it. Like, you're what the fuck? Yeah, it's and she even says when a conversation with Locke that she feels like Charlie's acting as the surrogate dad, and she's like, I don't really even know yeah. him. And yeah. and and so the big takeaway from this is she's like, I don't even know who he is. You know, he could be this religious nut. And Locke says, Well, I find that to be doubtful. But then she mentions that he's carrying around the, yeah. the Virgin Mary statue, and Locke knows what that means. Right. Locke's very aware of what that statue has yeah. in it. And as they're playing Othello, Charlie has the nerve to drop a line about how she has some things to learn about being a mom, like responsibilities and all. And Locke just quickly says, well, that's an interesting comment coming from yeah. a heroin addict. And Charlie says, oh, you know, recovering heroin addict. And Locke's like, oh, of course. Yes. Uh, oh, recovery. yeah. Pardon me. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be one thing if like somebody who was a seasoned parent were, were doing this, you know, like you could even just say like, oh, they're being kind of a busybody, but they mean well in terms of trying to like impart wisdom. And, and Locke is, of course, Locke, who just seems to know a whole bunch of random shit about different things. So he's like, oh, baby's like swaddling. Well, that's just something he probably saw in some TV special or something because it's Locke. He's like this encyclopedia. But for Charlie, who yeah has none of that background, to be presuming to make decisions about the baby just firmly puts him in asshole idiot territory. Yeah, very, very bad look for Charlie here. <laughs> And now, and now Locke is well aware that the guy who he thought had uh, kicked his heroin habit, he had a hand in doing so, is maybe not as well off as we thought. Right. So that's that. Now we get to the tailies. This starts with them all waiting for Mr. Echo and Jin and Michael to get back before heading off. And Ana Lucia wants to get going without him. And this is where we see some of the compassion from the other tailies where they're, they're willing to wait. And she kind of puts the blame on Sawyer, but Sawyer explicitly states Michael only cares about himself and his kid, both of which have nothing to do with him and no concern to him. And naturally, that's when Michael returns, hearing him say all that. They head off, and now it's uh, it's daytime. They're sort of in the, the area by the water and the rocks and stuff. And somewhere along the way, I can't tell if, it, if it's like the pain in his shoulder becomes too much or Sawyer's just lost enough blood or what, but... The pain in his in his in where his gun wound was just turns out to be a lot for him. I think he's probably become septic. Yeah, that's probably what it is. I think he became septic, and he's probably going to go into shock soon if he doesn't get treated. Treated, or yeah, right. And and Libby even takes a look at it and is very playful with Sawyer and gets him to keep on coming along. Yeah, I like the way she tries to play the situation a little bit. Like, kind of seems like she actually has a bedside manner better than Jack without even being like a, a, a medical doctor. <laughs> right. I guess she, she's a psychologist or something along those lines. Right. She's yeah, a psychology major or something like that. Yeah. But either way, they, t- they, they end up taking a break on those rocky shorelines near the water. And Mr. Echo says, well, we need to cut inland because we don't know if we can make it around. And Ana Lucia takes that to mean that Mr. Echo is trying to get Sawyer back to the beach more quickly. And Mr. Echo does not deny this. Yeah. And you have this point where basically you see Ana Lucia's her leadership gets usurped by Echo as a result of him appealing to, you know, sympathy or the or, or empathy, I guess. Everybody sort of takes the side of, uh, no, we're not just going to leave this guy to die. Yeah, it's almost they're starting to question her authority a little mm-hmm. bit. Mm-hmm. Where maybe before it was a little more blind faith outside of Mr. Echo here. Right. So we finally figure out what happened with with the other tailies as when they're everyone's making their way quietly through the jungle and Lucy is uber insistent on everyone remaining completely silent. Yeah. And Michael says, well, if I'm going to have to be silent, you're going to have to tell me what happens. And so she says they came the first night that they were on the Island and took three people on that first night. 
then came back three weeks later and took nine other people. She says those others are smart, but they're animals. And they, and they, as a group on Lucy and them, they've only got one gun and one bullet to stop them. And she doesn't think obviously that's going to be enough if they're able to come after them. Right. And Michael remarks that they took my son. And Anna Lucia says, well, they took a lot of things. And and uh, I'm going to make the case, Kevin, and you, you edit these so you get to decide. But I would actually say this is the f- the second the second time it would be worth putting uh, a, a, a segment in here of a quote of that whole uh, Anna Lucia big speech, uh, because I think it not just because I think it, it really encapsulates what has gone on with the tailies to this point, but also that speech was used over and over and over again in promotion and advertisement and conversation and recaps that how many times that, that one, like the uh, monologue that she does there uh, shows up in recaps uh, that whole thing of, uh, do you think that one gun, and one bullet is going to stop them? Think again. Like they use that over and over. So, so at one point they're walking they're they're continue going, trying to get to inland and Sawyer passes out and on Lucia just wants to leave him. And the rest of them don't want to L- Libby, especially is pretty vocal about it. And on Lucia says, don't you remember what happened to us? What happened to Goodwin? And that causes Cindy to say, you know what? Maybe she's right. We should, we should help out. But Michael and Jen are pretty clear, like we're sticking around and helping our friend. And they actually recruit Mr. Echo and Bernard to help him out to make a, a make, makeshift stretcher to help carry him along the way. And and Ana Lucia relents and she sticks around as they're making this makeshift stretcher to carry him through the jungle. And there's this scene where they're carrying him through and they have to carry him up a hill and they put a lot of work into carrying him in this stretcher all the way up this hill. It's it's. It's a nice way of showing how much of a burden it is really carrying Sawyer through the jungle here. But it also yeah. is a nice way of showing that this crew has as they're in it together. These maybe Ana Lucia hasn't adopted Jin, Michael and Sawyer as one of their own, but they seem like they have. Yeah. And actually uh, they have a reprise of the um, Hollywood and Vines theme. I know I'm jumping into music, but I love that uh, whenever there's like a trek through the jungle, it's a great section to have that. Uh, it's just that struggle music. You can see, like you said, how hard they're working and everything. And, you know, cause you're thinking about them carrying a stretcher through the jungle and you forget about oh, what, when they have to go like a huge incline and stuff like that. And that takes, that takes all five of them coordinating or six or however many to, uh, to make that work. And uh, I'll talk about this scene when we get to the end with the special features. But once they get to the top of the hill, they realize that Cindy is gone. And Anna Lucia is planning to go find her, but then they start to begin to hear the whispers. And Anna Lucia tells them all to run. And that's where we're going to leave our our people for now, the the tailies for now. All right. That's before we get into the flashback. Yes. This and again, this is a Shannon episode, so this is we're, this is a little meatier. We're going to talk talk here. So in her flashback, Shannon was a ballet instructor, or a dance instructor of sorts. She's leading a class of young students. It it, it appears to be a recital because there's quite a few parents in the room including one of them who is very obviously busy chatting up one of Shannon's fellow instructors instead of watching his daughter dance. Now, is this a guy that we'll see again, or is this just sort of a passing thing with this gentleman? I do not think we see this person again. If we do, it is in a deleted scene. Uh, did you watch the deleted scenes? I uh, No, I didn't think I, w- I don't know if there, I watched the, the thing where they talk about, the show, but I didn't see deleted scenes. One of the things that lost sometimes does on some of the DVDs that can be 
frustrating or fine, depending on your opinion, but is they'll separate the flashback deleted scenes from the island deleted scenes. So like they'll call the deleted scenes the lost flashbacks. Oh, I uh, so it actually takes a little work to find them if you're trying to find them on YouTube. I found it on YouTube because I, uh, I, I just wasn't interested in popping in my special features DVD to dig for it. But I'm not sure if it's the same guy, but there's a deleted scene later with another sort of equally creepy older guy kind of creeping on a, uh, a young woman. Okay. Well, we'll see. <laughs> same type, anyway. So I just looked this up, Kevin, and it is the same guy. Great. Okay. I thought there like, it feels like something that they would probably have. Yeah. They followed up on it a little bit and then it just got that scene got cut for time. Right. Well, regardless, after this recital, Shannon, her and are chatting and just talking about how gross this guy was. He's trying to make the other instructor, her au pair, blah, blah, blah. But in this time, Shannon's mom calls to tell her that her father was in a car accident to meet her at the hospital. And we know from the man of science, man of faith episode, this is the same accident that Jack's future wife, Sarah was in. So here we are at the hospital with Shannon and her her stepmom with another doctor. And as the doctor is telling him to come with him, Jack passes by. He kind of like is moving behind the guy, kind of excusing him to go pass by. There's no eye contact yeah. or anything made, but yeah. Jack and his wig are there. And we're seeing the other side of what we've already seen before in this scene. Yeah, exactly. So as the doctor is, he delivers the news that they were unable to save the father. And the doctor says, oh, if you and your your daughter want to come with me to my office. And she corrects the doctor and says, oh, it's my stepdaughter. Because oh, cool. that was super important to. I'm to sorry, but I have step. I have I have a stepbrother, a stepsister, and a stepmother, and I stopped calling them with the preface "step" years ago because yep. I love those people, and I just don't even think about it anymore. You know, well, like obviously, her mother still does. Exactly. So, like, I, I, I mean, now that's let me say, I'm not judging anybody. Like, if somebody else still uses that term, what's in your heart is what matters. So that may not be true. For for everybody, but with the way that this mom reacts to that and, and the way she says that, you can tell that there's there's hidden meaning to that. For her, it is important to make that distinction. Right, I'm that. distancing myself from this girl. Right, perfect. And so we see at the funeral with her father, Boone is there, and they have a nice hug, and Shannon says, you came back. Boone! <laughs> yeah, so, so you can tell that they get along well, and reminder that Shannon's stepmother is Boone's biological mother. Right. And this is the youngest we've seen of these characters, too. That's true. They're in her bedroom at the house, and Ben shares some scotch from a flask he brought with Shannon in her little teacups, which is a cute moment. Nice. And there's nothing romantic I, I kind of got from this. No. Um, the entire way. Through the whole flashback, I never got that sort of vibe from them. So I mean, we have, this, we have this understanding from previous knowledge that Boone has always had a thing for Shannon for as long as their parents have been together. Mm -hmm. But he... But it's not, he's not creepy here. And it might even come from the writers saying, yeah, we know that we wrote that as part of their past, but maybe let's not bring it up again. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't, wasn't brought, didn't go over the greatest with the fans. No. <laughs> and they're discussing how Shannon may be moving to New York soon because she's had, she's applied for this internship with this very prestigious dance company. And Boone is currently living in New York. And Shannon tells Boone that there's some resentment between her and Boone's mother, which of course is pretty obvious from that, yeah. that opening scene. Yeah. I mean, we don't, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. We do, we don't really get a whole lot of reasoning behind that other than the fact that I guess the mother indicates it a couple of ways that she doesn't think that Shannon, you know, is a very hard worker or that Shannon's just kind of entitled. Right. Yeah. Kind of beyond that, that gives us any, like really concrete details as to why she doesn't like Shannon. Uh, it may just be that whole thing where she fell in love with her father, but 
the kid's baggage and something she just has yeah. to ex- begrudgingly accept along with the, the sure. package. I mean, that's definitely a thing that happens for uh, sure. So yeah. I, I, I don't think it necessarily needs a lot more explanation. I was just just curious if there's anything that you picked up on that I didn't. I, I just got the sense that she kind of thought that Shannon was, again, sort of a freeloader. Right. Yeah, that's and we'll we'll get to that in here in a second. Yeah. Shannon's at her own apartment that she's with a friend of hers. And the letter comes from the dance company. And she's been accepted into the internship. And it's all very exciting. Yeah. Because they really build up how there's this is prestigious there's so many applicants and this could really kick open a bunch of doors but unfortunately that happiness is ever fleeting as at the same time a phone call comes letting shannon know that her rent check has bounced womp womp oh she says that's impossible right (laughs) yeah well we'll see so shannon of course goes to her mother-in-law and is talking to her about the situation and her mother-in-law's getting ready and doesn't seem all that interested and shannon wants to know when she'll get her share of her father's will to which the mother-in-law says there is no will. She's very cold about Shannon's financial situation and refuses to even give her financial assistance just to get to New York and flat out tell Shannon, you're on your own. Now help me out with this. Cause I think so. some of this is kind of dicey to me. I think maybe some of the lack of information is to, is to make us as confused as Shannon is maybe. But so the impression I get is that while he was alive, Shannon's father was kind of constantly replenishing her checking account. And then when, of course, when, of course he died, that stopped happening because the mother, the stepmother took over all the finances. And then she never had a conversation with Shannon where she said, Hey, Shannon, I'm not going to be replenishing your checking account anymore. That seems like the way that happened. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. Um, okay. Cause I don't know that the dance gig would afford her own apartment or anything. Like, yeah. And I yeah. guess I'm just, I'm, I'm assuming that situation, especially for where you know, where they are in California. Yeah. So. And based on what we know of them, you know, it just seems like that it seems like the mom was perfectly happy to just let Shannon fall on her face without even warning her. Like I can, uh, I can understand hey, saying, Hey, you know, your dad might've given you all this money. My values are a little different. I expect you to work for it. And so, you know, I'm going to help you to this point, but you need to start providing X, Y, Z for yourself, but to not even have that conversation and then just sort of let her fall flat on her face is, is really fucked up. Right. Yeah. It's like, it's not even like a, you have six months or a year. Exactly. Uh, or, exactly. you know, or, you know, I'll get you to New York, but once you're there, you're on your own. Right. Yeah. You know, which, very full, yeah. very cold. So then we see Shannon's packing up her apartment, obviously can't afford to live there anymore. And Boone enters the room. It seems to me like Boone went to bat for Shannon and got shut down to get the money for her. But not only did he get shut down, he got a job offer to work for his mother, which he accepted, which Shannon is in disbelief about because she was essentially hoping that she could move to New York and live with Boone for a little while while she got on her feet. And now that's not even an option because Boone's moving back to California to work for her mom, which we knew that was his his job uh, as he talked to about Locke and the jungle and a couple right. other times throughout right. the series. But now we know this is, it, it's, it's a very cold move by the mother by not only saying no to Shannon, but giving him a job. So now he can't yeah. be her ally as much as he was before. Yeah. You can't help but think that it was not a coincidence that this job opportunity came up for him right when it was looking like, you know, he and Shannon might have been getting closer. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And Boone Boone tries to give her money and says, you know, once my trust fund kicks in, I can keep you afloat. And Shannon takes this to mean that he doesn't feel like she can do things her way or be able to keep herself afloat. And Boone insists that's not what he meant, but she gives him back the money saying that, yeah, I can do it on my own. 
Yeah, I mean, she's uh, she's reached a point of being talked down to and 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 so forth. That I think she just has had enough of that. And I think she said too that she's always again like I don't think this this episode doesn't overtly reference it because they they might have realized that it wasn't a popular decision. But I think she realizes that you know Boone harbored an attraction to her, and she doesn't. She also doesn't want his money because she doesn't want that to be the reason. I think. Yeah, definitely. So. And that ends our flashback. Yeah. They're, uh, they're really propping up Shannon just before they come crashing down. <sighs> Which is uh, sadly not an uncommon thing. Uh, no, certainly <laughs> not. Show. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I really, really enjoyed this flashback because, you know, we only got one Boone-Shannon flashback last season. But they were it was definitely a Boone-Shannon flashback and not just a Shannon flashback or just a Boone flashback. So to have this character get, I get acknowledgement independent from the brother now that, you know, she's the only one of the two that was still on the show was nice and get a little more specific background to her. And I think it also fed a lot of the things that you see later in, in the one that from last season, what did, what did you think is flashback? Yeah, I liked it too. It was nice seeing Boone again. Nice seeing the great wig work from Lost uh, <laughs> here. Maybe extensions for Shannon, but yeah, th- that's th- that seems to be their their choice du jour to get people to look younger is mess up the hair, do something. Oh, yeah. with it. And some hair on top of it. Yeah, I thought I thought it was very good for Shannon to get her own standalone episode here, and uh, I think it was a nice little redemption story for her uh, to yeah. show that she wasn't always this spoiled prissy brat before she got to the island. That she had. She she had it in her mind that I want to do things my way. I want to yeah. I want to stand as my own woman. And we're all I mean we're all a product of our environment. And she's lived a life of privilege. So there's no getting around that. There's not. I mean that, I don't think that's something that needs to be sugarcoated. That she's some of her you know the way she behaved on the island, especially in the early days, came from the fact that she lived a life of privilege. And we're all a product of our environment. But that there was this other side to her that did want to make it on her own and earn her own way through the world. And just needed a little help with that. And and at, when she needed the help most, uh, the people around her abandoned her, which is, you know, of course, what the episode title is. So, yep. yeah, I thought it was really good. Really solid flashback. So let's get to the Shannon part of the island story. Yeah. She's given Vincent some water when Saeed brings her over to this. It's not essentially a canopy or a tent. It's much nicer than both of those things. But I'm just going to use the word canopy for, for, for the sake of ease. That Saeed is built for Shannon and them to for her to live in them to live together, whatever for privacy sake. I think you're being way too nice, Kevin. <laughs> it's a sex tent. Let's just call it what it is, but it's not a public sex tent. It's <laughs> air tent. God, I love this. So they begin to, they begin to kiss and Saeed apologizes and pulls a gun out of his pants. Right. Love that. Or you Is just- it cock while he's pulling it out. Cause that's another thing lost is famous for is, Every time somebody touches a gun, it makes a cocking noise. I don't think it did, but it's the great, are you happy to see me or is that a gun yeah. in your pants? It was a gun in his pants. It should have made a cocking noise, but yeah, that that's funny too, the whole, yeah. And after that, they resume kissing and then some. So they're canoodling after some love making when Shannon says she wants a, she's thirsty and Saeed offers to go get her some water. But as he after he leaves, 
a dripping wet Walt appears again and says something in backwards. Shannon screams and he goes to the lost logo. Now I did look up if this was something backwards, like it was the first time with, yes. the, you know, don't push the button. Not anything I could find. It appeared to be anything, but just incoherent backwards. Oh, screen. really? See, that's funny. Cause I heard something for this one. Oh, okay. What'd you hear? Yeah, see, I, see, I learned my lesson. Cause last time I was, uh, uh, we talked about it when he showed up in the premiere and I was like, Oh, I don't think it's anything. And you were like, actually, <laughs> so I guess now it's my turn to do that because Please do. <laughs> uh, what I got was that it's, he said they're coming and they're close. Okay. And that was said backwards was what I found. Well, he was right. Uh huh. So then as we come back from the last logo, Saeed surveying the canopy, the sex tent, we'll just call it what it is. <laughs> and he's fat. He finds nothing. Thing. He tries to tell Shannon it was a dream, but she insists it was all very real. And she's all offended by Seed and yeah. so elsewhere we have Rose and Hurley. They're hanging clothes on a makeshift clothesline. And Rose tells Hurley she doesn't care for the hatch much and she'd prefer to just dry the clothing in the fresh air because Hurley's like, why don't you just use the dryer in the hatch? So Rose prefers to do things her way or doesn't really care for what the hatch is or whatever. Rose has got her island groove. It's she a does. little bit a little bit Lockean in a way. Yeah, that Locke prefers to do things like a more rustic way because of where he is and because he leave, believes in the the power of where he is. Like it's almost out of respect for the situation that we're going to do things the old fashioned way. And, and I think, you know, how could she want to go back to that chapter the last time it was Hurley tried to blow it up and was giving this long speech about responsibility and people hating him and all that. So probably just bad juju. She yeah. gets from being around there. Also a valid point. Very true. So while they're all doing this, Shannon passes by them with Vincent. She takes him to, to Walt's suitcase and gives him some of Walt's clothes for Vincent to pick up a scent, then sends him off into the jungle to find Walt. And she ends up by Boone's grave. And this triggers one of our flashbacks and she's yeah. all sad. And Saeed eventually meets up with her by the grave and he tries to be empathetic, but Shannon just tells him to go back and she takes Vincent to go find Walt again. Saeed's now following her. And as they're chatting, Shannon reveals to Saeed that she found the bottle with the messages in them, which is why she knows Walt is somewhere out there. Cause Saeed mm -hmm. at this point's liking, you know, it's crazy to think Walt's out here when he's on the raft. And she's like, uh, au contraire, mon frere. Here's this bottle with these messages in it. <laughs> well, she does speak French. That's right. There you go. Watching this in a modern context was interesting to me because, you know, we're having a conversation in our society now about what it means for women to be believed. And this is obviously a complete fantasy situation, but I think the idea is just the same that like she's in a traumatic situation. And do we say that we start from a position of believing Shannon or do we say, oh, silly girl, you don't know what you're talking about. And I feel like Saeed starts on the wrong side of that. And sort of shows some, I guess, incredulity or something, but especially considering what he's already seen and heard himself. And I saw so just this whole time I was just thinking, you know, you care about this person, but you're not willing to take what she says at face value as like a starting point. Does that, I mean, is, am I crazy for thinking that or am I reading too much into it? No, let's just say I have a tie for assholeity in this episode. Okay. All right. Well, you know, I'm glad to hear that because yeah. <laughs> I did too. That's amazing. <laughs> There we go. We have the same two characters. <laughs> and I believe we, we gave them to the both of them a couple episodes ago. Or at I, least I think you so. Did. Yeah. I mean, that's all, all I'm saying is I just feel like, you know, if, if, and I believe Saeed when he says that he loves Shannon, I believe that. But I also think that if what comes with that is that when somebody says something, you take them at their word first. And I have honestly, I will fully admit that I have been guilty of not believing somebody or taking some, what they say at face value. 
uh, a couple times myself, and I've usually regretted it. So anyway, we can get back to the story, and then this is too serious or a uh, an after school special moment, but. Um, I just felt that it was relevant to what was going on now. I, I kind of saw all this stuff unfolding in a different light, considering some of the national conversation Definitely. more recently. Well, let's get to the the big final scene here. Yeah. So it's now raining, of course. Rain is a very symbolic thing in Lost. It's raining as they run through the jungle. Shannon falls in the mud, and she tells Saeed, don't help me up. And so Saeed comes to her level, and Shannon's crying. And she says, nobody believes me. They think I'm some kind of joke who's worthless. Saeed says, you're not worthless, but Shannon's convinced as soon as they get off the island, Saeed is going to leave her. And Saeed tells Shannon he will never leave her and then tells her, I love you. And most importantly, he believes her. They embrace in the rain in a very touching moment, but the touching moment is ended by whispers. And they both take a look in the distance. And now here, so here's an interesting question. Shannon sees Walt shushing them from a distance. And Shannon asks Saeed, do you see him? And Saeed says, yes. Now, after this whole conversation about belief and stuff, do you think Saeed actually saw Waltz or that he said that to make Shannon feel better? That is a good question. See, I, okay, I was thinking of a similar question. I was dialing it back about 15 seconds from that to when he says that he believes her before any of the island mysterious stuff happens, the whispers and Waltz and everything. At that moment, does he believe her uh, or is he just saying it? Maybe because I love the character of Saeed so much, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt and say yes. And also yes to your question of that he sees Walt. Does the episode leave that up to interpretation? Possibly. But when when she looks back at Saeed and says, do you see him? I feel like his rea- he doesn't actually even say yes. He just kind of nods, nods in this nervous way. That reaction feels genuine to me, to seeing something like that. And like I said, just because I want to give Saeed the benefit of the doubt, I want to believe that he does come around to believing her. Like he recognizes that he was wrong not to take her at her word, even prior to like, you know, hearing the whispers and stuff. Great that you had that question because I was thinking about all those same things myself at that moment. Well, I'm going to look really stupid when the next episode he's like, I saw Walt. And I'm like, well, if I had just waited a second. <laughs> I don't remember who said that or not, but yeah. <laughs> So I'm going to look like a real fool come next yeah. week. We'll see. <laughs> of course, Shannon runs after Walt and Saeed gives chase to her, but he trips. So Shannon gets a, a little bit of distance on him and bang, we hear a gunshot and we don't see what happened. But Saeed runs after Shannon screaming her name and she comes to him and she's been shot in the stomach and she he brings her down to the ground and she ends up dying. And then we see coming around the corner, Anna Lucia with a gun in her hand. And Michael and Jen are behind her in disbelief. And Saeed just gives them this look that's sorrow and anger and all this emotion wrapped up into one. And then episode over. So there goes our, our second main character has yeah. is now bitten the dust here on Both the Both of the siblings. Right, yes. Shannon Rutherford, our second victim on the island. That uh, probably meant that she got a Good Morning America interview the next morning. I was going to ask, did she indeed get the I, I imagine so. I, I actually want to go and look now and see how many of them did it because it became kind of a, a, like a jokey tradition. But yeah, almost like almost like getting voted off of the uh, island on Survivor, but uh, just fictional. I was really bummed out that Shannon uh, did not last longer because I think she was evolving into a very interesting character. I always tend to have a soft spot for characters that start out where people 
can't stand them or have like really abrasive personality traits that make them not a typical fodder for a sympathetic protagonist and then sort of slowly move away from that. And, and she was, I think a good example of that. Somebody at first just seemed like sort of a stuck up privileged, uh, you know, kind of snob. And then the things that happened to her on the Island uh, really started to uh, change her. And, but I feel like that got cut short here, which is unfortunate. I, I'll talk about the, I watched the bonus, the kind of the behind the scenes stuff on this episode before getting okay. into superlatives. Yeah. So Damon Lindelof says they knew Shannon was going to die before season two even began. Wow. They wanted the two pairings of the the survivors and the tailies coming together on very uncomfortable circumstances. Yes. I knew that much. Right. Now why that, why Shannon they felt was the one who needed to go. They don't really expand upon, but right. they wanted a death to kind of do that. And they, yeah. had, he said something like, you know, this whole time we're playing up that the stakes on the island are life or death. So there's got to be some character turnover to make those stakes very realistic. Yes. And they they said that from the beginning. They said, you know, main characters will die because that's the kind of show it is. Here's my thing with that, though. Like, I see characters treading water in this season already without even going into spoiler territory. I mean, you and I have been on for at least a few episodes now about Charlie. And you have to wonder, like you said, you know, they wanted, and I heard the same thing you did about how they said, we want them, we want the the meeting of the tail section people and the main survivors to happen in like the most uncomfortable circumstances possible because it creates conflict, it creates drama, you know, makes sense. Then, but then what, what led to the choice of Shannon? Like, I felt like Shannon was just starting to develop in a really interesting way as a character, whereas Charlie it feels like they're going backwards with his character right now. Was Shannon in three Lord of the Rings movies? I, I, you beat me to it. Yeah, I was yeah. gonna. That's exactly what I was gonna say. I said it, it, it. Only thing I can think of is that it had to do with the fact that Dominic Monaghan was a bigger name. Although honestly, I don't know. The average moviegoer, like, what were the names of the actors that played the Hobbits? Is everybody gonna bolt, bolt out anything other than Elijah Wood? I mean, the average moviegoer. Yeah, maybe not. Maybe so a, I, maybe what's his name? Orlando or Orlando Bloom? Is that his name? Well, like he was Ross? an elf. Yeah, but yeah, I get I get your point. But yeah. Uh, so yeah, I mean that could have it could have been some commercialism in there in terms of let's keep you know and and that's of course nothing against Dominic Monaghan. Um uh, overall, I really like the character of Charlie. I feel like he, there's a there's weirdness going on with his character and the way he's being written right now in the episodes that we're currently watching, but yeah, it still just feels like if are you sitting down and saying, "Okay, what's the most disposable character that we can kill off?" Or maybe they just felt like Charlie was so liked in the first season that there would have been, you know, a lot more outcry, whereas people were a lot more sort of willing to see Shannon bite the dust. Well, I'm giving him a little more credit to the fact that Saeed loves Shannon and now she's dead and Saeed has some pull on the island. Like he has some say amongst what what's going on and he's been established mm-hmm. as alpha character. Mm-hmm. I think for him to be against the the tailies is important as it as as maybe a more underneath character being against them wouldn't have the same weight uh, right. amongst your locks and jacks of the island. Shannon is a character whose death impacts one specific person a lot more uh, heavily than than like if you if Charlie did if Charlie was the one that they had killed. Who, who's that most likely to impact Claire? Well, then Claire and he are not even on the greatest of terms right now themselves. Mm-hmm. And she, and she lost her memory of like what the first three weeks on the Island when they were first bonding. So, exactly. you know, so, so that's, uh, yeah, I guess if you had to choose, maybe some of the logic was we have to choose a character whose death 
will really heavily impact a specific other character in a way that that character is going to take a long time to come back from. I have this great thought in my head of like Saeed or whoever coming back to the island being like, guys, they killed Charlie. Everyone just kind of looks at him, shrugs, and then goes back to what they were doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that sucks. Oh, I guess that uh, best of drive shaft uh cd won't be coming out then or maybe it'll be a platinum or something now that all, all now that he's you didn't even make it off the island i don't know some other fun stuff from this is naveen andrews says it was his idea to put him and shannon together oh yeah thinking the most shocking and unexpected thing they can do for middle america was pair him with the girl who looks like miss america right and maggie grace says that naveen called her miss america as a nickname which he thought was was nice even in like text messages and stuff and uh, the writer, Elizabeth Sarnoff, said she thought it was this was a good way to make Shannon less flighty and more of a person to be reckoned with, uh, mm -hmm. their relationship and mm -hmm. the flashback here. Yeah. And I, and I think the other thing, too, because I do like to think that, like I said before, that ultimately Saeed came around at the end of this episode and sort of started treating Shannon with the respect that she deserved in terms of her story. I believe that he did truly love her, and I believe that that – love was more pure to me than like Jack's need to fix things, which informs a lot of the way he treats Kate or like Charlie's need to quote unquote, take care of someone, which is what informs a lot of his, the way he treats Claire, you know, like these things that we've seen with those two guys and their flashbacks. Right. We're almost the way that they're dealing with the woman is, is, is in, it's about it, them. It's self-serving in yes. addition to being helpful to them. It's about them. Whereas I really feel like Saeed, what he feels for Shannon is this sort of, unexpected connection between two people and that what he's doing is like out of a genuine care for her rather than like dealing with his own issues. So I'll say that, you know, in defense of Saeed, even if he started out sort of on the wrong side of things in this episode, that is a good transition into our superlatives. What was your scene of the episode? My favorite moment was actually when Cindy disappears and everybody hears the whispers and Anna Lucia shouts run because it just sent shivers up my spine, the way she disappeared like instantaneously and how terrified that made the other tail section people. It's something like when you, when that happened, it was like, okay, this has happened to these people before. And we still are not at the point yet where we've gotten their story of like, you know, the details of what's happened to them. So that sort of unknown factor is really scary to me. So I thought that was a super effective moment. I picked the ending where we see the reveal of Ana Lucia with the gun and yeah. Sai just holding Shannon in the pouring rain and just the look he gives them all as Michael and Jin come across the corner and they're like, oh shit. <laughs> it's a it's a heck of a moment. It's very yeah. It's it's very uh, nice nice gravitas to it. Well, and Naveen Andrews his his uh, his his acting in that is uh, like the way he reacts uh, right before the cut to Lost is uh, really really effective. It's that whole oh, shit's about to go down now. You know when you're yep. watching it. Yeah, so, I yeah. mean, really, the whole thing from them once the rain starts to the end, it's a really great. It's a great yeah. acting moment for for Naveen Andrews and Maggie Grace leading into that. It's it's all so well put together. Yeah. It's the rain. It's the the rain seems to do something. It's it's almost like it, it is a subliminal effect on a lost viewer that they've done this now. Where when rain happens, you feel like something impactful is about to happen, and you get pumped up. And if it's in the last five minutes of an episode, you really get pumped up because <laughs> yep. something big always has to happen, happen before the end of a last episode. Mm -hmm. So it's just amping up yeah. all that ex right. expectation. Definitely. I did not produce a quote for this episode. What about you? My quote was, 
I'm Shannon. With Maggie Grace and her performance in this, I thought particularly impactful for me was this was uh, in the rain when they're running through when when uh, Said is sort of chasing after her. She's running after you know what she saw as Walt, and she falls and he gets over to her. This is before they reconciled at all, and she just says, "Do not help me up." I thought it was like mm-hmm. it was, you know, it's like in that moment she was so. Like, I do not want help from somebody who's not willing to believe me. I'm not going to, you know, whatever, whatever I'm doing right now is, is I'm doing this myself. And so I thought her whole performance in this episode, I thought was really good, but I, but I just felt that quote in particular uh, was just so, was very forceful and, and really informed like where the character was at that moment. My only runner-up would be that whole Ana Lucia speech, but that might be cheating because that's like a minute and a half of dialogue. (laughs) I think we said we might have a mutual tie asshole idiot. Yeah, it's Charlie and Saeed, and I don't think we need to yeah. go any further on We've that. We've probably beaten those two guys to death at this point. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, the only instance of the numbers I found was that Shannon said she'd be working 16 hours a day working her internship. Yep, that's okay. all I got. And then for – I actually, I wrote down a Sawyer nickname. And oh, yeah? Because I really enjoyed when he called Ana Lucia Ponce de Leon at the beginning. Yeah, that, that was really appropriate and funny, yeah. <laughs> was there other Sawyer nicknames? No, that was the only one. Right, I think so he might have he's, – he's still, like, on and off calling Gin Chewy. I like that. That's <laughs> been just fairly consistent. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good one. Yeah. Does that imply that Sawyer is Han? I think he would like to think of himself as Han. He's the, oh. he's the rebel. I was going to say then that makes Michael Lando, but that is not something I want to <laughs> tuck it on my collar here. Yeah. Uh, so how about music? We got nothing for books. Music. I already mentioned Hollywood and Vines. And again, it's not that song. It's, but it's the repeat of that motif, but there's two uh, incidental tracks. Um, one is called Meditation. It is a song from the opera, uh, which I think is just called Ties, T-H-A-I-S, by Jules Manasseh, Massenet. Anyway, it plays when they're doing the, um, the, the practice scene in the very beginning in the ballet class, ballet studio. That just plays in the background. The other one I think is more recognizable to a lot of people is a song Stay by Dave Matthews Band that plays in Shannon's apartment when she gets her acceptance letter for the internship. I think that's funny because it pretty firmly roots the time frame that that uh, flashback took place. Kevin, you are uh, a, a few years younger than me, so you probably don't remember when being in college meant hearing Dave, Bath- Ma- Dave Matthews Band a lot, whether you wanted to or not. Oh, so um, I, I have a brother who's he's four years older than me. Yeah, and he went to UVA, and Dave okay. Matthews, of course, is from Charlottesville. Right? Yeah. So yeah, they uh, right in ground zero for Dave Matthews. Yep. Band. A little baby. So yeah. dude, having like uh, every other car in a parking lot, and I, you know, I worked in in parking since uh, 1999 in one way or another. I mean, walking through a parking lot where about every third car had a Dave Matthews bumper sticker on it. That is a very specific moment in time. I, they they were not they were not a flash in the pan. They were not like they weren't like a Hootie and the Blowfish type situation where one year everybody loved them and the next year everybody was like, "Who's Hootie and the Blowfish?" They lasted a few years, but it was definitely a thing where I think after the first couple of years of them getting big, it became a thing where like it was sort of a stereotype. Like if you're a if you're a you know, upper class white college student, you're really into Dave Matthews band. And that was true for a long time. And I, the thing is, I like their music. I just, it's one of those things where when it becomes popular enough and you hear it constantly, it starts, you start to get a little resentful. 
Well, man, you're the only one in the rink. Do you have any requests? Dave Matthews Band, no hits, deep tracks only. That's right, deep tracks only. <laughs> and then Ants Marching begins to play. No hits. Yeah, so like I said, you know, perfectly good, very talented band, good music, but just uh, there was a time period where it was uh, major overkill, uh, and especially if you were a college student at the time. So. Yeah, they're a little bit of a punchline now. They uh, are, they are, yeah. I try not to sound mean with this stuff, but that was definitely the 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 way it was at the time. Yeah, it, it wasn't it was not that way in college, but like I'm very familiar with the with the whole Dave Matthews culture and the way that people perceive them. Yeah. Right. One other thing, I didn't get a chance to throw this in anywhere else, and it's not uh so it's kind of a weird last thing to mention, but the uh, woman who played uh Sabrina Carlisle, Shannon's uh, stepmother, her name is Lindsay Frost. And she is the sister of Mark Frost, the co-creator of Twin Peaks. How about that? So I thought that was interesting, <laughs> being a rabid Twin Peaks fan myself. Both yeah. shows which the last season get fans, just they just love them. No criticism. <laughs> Both shows that are not controversial or worthy of discussing in any way, shape, or form. Not at all. <laughs> so I think that does it for our, yeah. for our few episodes. Always a, a, a hallmark moment when a character bites the dust. Yeah. And... uh Farewell to Shannon Rutherford. But always, like we said with Boone, and has always or already proven true, you never know when you've seen the last of a character on Lost because we we watch a show that exists outside of linear time with our flashbacks. So just like we got a Boone Carlisle today, who knows if we'll see Shannon again? Who knows? Only time will tell. But for now, you can follow me on Twitter at KFord13. You can also follow the show on Twitter at LostPod. Every Monday, a new episode publishes. You can find all the archives at enterthereelworld.com. But anytime a new episode is posted, of course, we will post about it on Twitter. And you can interact with us on Twitter. But if you have any thoughts or comments that are longer than 240 characters or you don't like or have Twitter, feel free to email us at lostpodquestions at gmail.com with questions, comments, concerns, what have you. You may just happen to read them on the air. But most importantly, do feel free to pass along this show to anybody in your life who is a Lost fan, thinking about becoming a Lost fan, and uh, leave some feedback. Ben, what do you have? Well, Kevin, at this very moment, I'm looking at my desk, and I have the most recently uh, penciled and inked page of Neopolitine, which is my uh, comic that I do uh, and publish online with my writing partner, Marjorie. It's at neopolitine.com. That's N-E-O-P-O-L-A-T-I-N-E. An action adventure comic for all ages that also has uh, some mystery and ongoing serial elements that I think Lost fans would appreciate. So check it out. It's 99 cents uh, bargain price for 70 page first issue. Uh, like I said, I'm working on the second issue right now. And uh, you can also find us on uh, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. So please check us out. And that'll do for this week. Thanks everybody for listening. We'll see you next week with episode seven and eight of season two. See you then. When the hours roll by Doing nothing for the fun A little taste of a good life Whether right or wrong Makes us want to stay